It's good to be back up here with you all again this morning. As the, uh, as the kids and the youth guy of the church, I typically get invited to do some of those gigs where senior Pastor Pete doesn't want to preach, and that's totally fine. Um, so you're stuck with me this morning for the next half hour or so. If I haven't met you, it's great to see you here this morning. Also, just want to quickly make a special thank you to my grandfather who's here as well, and my best mate, Jake. So thanks for coming along this morning and supporting me. I really do appreciate it. In typical... Uh, up on this stage, uh, Tom Bizzle preaching fashion, I've got all of his supplies ready for this morning, a box of tissues for the tears and a bottle of water. So get ready for some of that a little bit later on. Over the last few weeks, we've been working through the gospel of Luke and we've had Steve Adams and Pete Milliken, they've been taking us through it so far. And I would actually like to encourage you this morning that if you haven't listened to those sermons, well, you probably should. They're great sermons, but more importantly, they've actually got some really good detail in them about some items which I'm going to talk about today, but I just don't have the time to go into the depth that they did in the weeks prior. And so if you get the chance, I'd love you to have a listen. I want to start this morning by saying that this week, the sermon to prepare has not been an easy one. Not because it's some obscure, strange passage, or even necessarily a tough topic, but rather because it's actually about the theme of joy. Let me give you two reasons why that topic can make it a challenge. First one is retail. Anyone here ever worked in retail in their life? Put your hand up if you have. Now keep your hand up if you still like Christmas after having worked in retail, just as I thought. Anyone who knows what retail jobs are like knows that it certainly isn't the most joyous time of year. You get all of these angry customers, you get overly enthusiastic parents looking to buy a present for their kids so that their child can use it for maybe that day and then forget about it forever. And I think even worst of all is Mariah Carey. She's on repeat. (laughs) For the 50th time that day. Um, if I'd never heard of Mariah Carey again, I'd be, I'd be happy. You know, but there is a second, more serious reason why the topic of joy can be a tough one. Is that for a lot of people, perhaps even in this room right now, your joy levels in life might be quite low. Maybe it's poor health. Maybe it's some family dispute or troubles going on. Could be loneliness. Or maybe it's your first Christmas without a loved one. Lots of things can be going on that can, remove, that, well, that can seem to remove any sense of joy in your life. And so if that's you, then I want to encourage you to know that you are not alone. You are certainly not alone. I trust that what I share today is going to encourage you in your spirit and help you to see Christ more clearly. That's what I've needed this week. And so I trust that it'll do the same for you. And so I want to start by asking you this question this morning. What brings you the most joy in this life? What brings you the most joy in this life? Do you like playing sport? Do you like fishing? Do you even just enjoy that car that you've got in the back shed or the house you own? Maybe it's your business. Or maybe it's a little bit more personal in being a person. Maybe it's your best friend, your housemate, your husband or your wife, maybe even your child. What brings you the most joy in this life? I want to say to you this morning that having joy in life isn't a bad thing. In fact, it's actually good. It's a really good thing. And if you don't have any joy in any area of your life, then you're just going to end up being a very, very depressed, sad person. You've got no fulfillment. You've got no hope. With that all being said, the joys in this lifetime that you might have just thought of just then, one day they will cease. The activity that brought you great joy all those years ago will one day stop. 
I used to love playing sport. I was quite good at it, believe it or not. But my knees, well, they had other plans, and so that stopped it. The joy that I once had in playing sport is gone. I can still watch it. I enjoy that. But it's a different... The joy that I had physically is gone. The property you own, the car you love, the fishing boat you have, one day you won't have that. Your best friend, your parent, even your child could reject you. They could ignore you. And eventually, they're going to pass away. So the question then will be, how do you respond when you don't have that joy anymore? I want to say to you this morning that you need a real joy. You need a joy that's not found in some temporal possession. That's not even found in a family member or a friend or a loved one. Rather, you need a joy that lasts. You need a joy that endures despite difficult circumstances. And one that never shifts, that never changes and never ends. To help us unpack this this morning, we're going to look at three areas. And they're this. First one is the joy of a child. Number two is joy in the promise. And number three is joy in salvation. So would you pray with me now as we prepare to open God's word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather as your people this morning. We thank you that your word is true yesterday, today and forever. And I pray that as we teach from it this morning, that our hearts and our lives would be forever changed. There might be people who are in this room who love you, that they would love you even more. And God, I'm asking that there would even be people in this room who don't love you yet, who would. Not because of anything that I've prepared, but because of your Holy Spirit being at work. And so we ask you to do a mighty work this morning in your name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 1. And specifically, we're going to be looking at verses 57 to 80. So we've got a fair chunk to get through. So you can get that open if you like and get prepared for it. However, before I get to that passage, I just need to actually recap a little bit what's happened previously in the story. Pete Miller can cover this very thoroughly in the first sermon of the series. So again, I'd love you to go back and have a listen to it. What we see is that there was a couple named Zachariah and Elizabeth. Zachariah was a priest. And in chapter 1, verse 8 to 10, we read that his name was chosen and he was sent into the temple to do his job and to burn incense. And so he did this. However, it was when he was in this place that he encountered the angel of the Lord named Gabriel, who was standing in the presence of the Lord, who said to him, your prayers have been answered and you would have a son. His name will be John. Now, the question to ask is, why was that his prayer? Well, you see that both he and his wife wanted a child, but they were well past childbearing age and she'd been barren her whole life, was unable to have a child. And so when he heard of this news in the temple, he simply couldn't believe it. Now, as such, for his unbelief, he was made mute. The angel of the Lord did it for two reasons. One, both as a temporal discipline, but perhaps most significantly, it was actually for him to believe. It was for him to believe. Now, I'm sure that a few women in this room would love for their husband to become mute for a period of time. Ladies, put your hand up if you'd like that. My wife did, but early when I was preparing. But we're going to read now from Luke chapter 1, verses 57 and 58. It'll be up on the screen as well. This is following on from what we've just shared. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared in her joy. 
Put your hand up here if you have a child. If you've had one in the past, most people. I'm sure that you will attest to the fact that yes, they make you tired. They cry, they continually fill nappies and they feed all day. However, there is nothing like that feeling of when you get to hold that brand new child. There's nothing like it. It's a miracle. It's a time of great joy. It's a time of great celebration. And I don't get to share this as just some vague idea or concept. Rather, it's something I was fortunate enough to experience exactly today, one year ago. There's my son, Lucas. This is where I get the tissues out. That, was, that happened in about two hours' time, one year ago. So he's born on Christmas Eve, half his luck. Lucas was born on Christmas Eve, and he is one of the greatest joys in my life. I've started to see him laugh, see him smile, and now watching him even learn to walk just this last week and talk, he is a true blessing to my wife, Sarah, and I, and we are truly thankful for him. And so before I go on, I want to say happy birthday, Lucas, even though he's asleep, typical. And I do love you very much. Now, to help you with our sermon this morning, um, and also for my own benefit, I'm just going to play a short clip for you to enjoy for 30 seconds or so. That's my son, Lucas, at about three or four months old, laughing at our dog. And I play that clip for two reasons. Number one, because I love him and I can. And number two, who is not filled with some joy whenever they hear of a baby laughing? You're not? You know, joy itself is described as a feeling of great pleasure and happiness. Seeing my son in that video and in all of life, it fills me with great pleasure and happiness, as it would for most of you. And so as we look at the text today with Zechariah and Elizabeth and their extended family, what we see is them being joyous. And we get it, right? They're excited at the birth of a child. They are filled with great pleasure and happiness at the birth of a healthy child, especially coming to one who was barren. It is good that we stop and rejoice and we give thanks at amazing events like the birth of a child. However, I want to suggest to you this morning that whilst the joy of a child is a very, very, very good thing, and it is certainly worthy of praise, that joy will not last. Eventually, the cute baby grows up to be an energetic toddler who scratches a new car, or a disobedient teenager who likes to argue a lot. Or a young adult who won't move out of home, keeps buying old cars, putting them in your dad's shed and losing all his tools whilst I'm at it. Just confess that was me, all three of those. No, but seriously, joy fluctuates. It'll be great sometimes and lower at others. And eventually, it will end. One of the saddest things in my life is that despite being only a fairly young age, I've actually had to see quite a few, or a number of mates who've passed away be it through sickness or disease. And whilst these funerals are terribly sad, and I hope I don't have to relive them for many years to come with anyone else that I love, 
They're sad, but the saddest thing of the service is when their mother and father are up the front trying to talk about their child that they love. That is the saddest thing that you could ever see. Might seem a little bit extreme, but it's a sobering reality on the fact that all earthly joy, all things that we want to put our temporal hopes in, will cease. And as such, like Zachariah and Elizabeth, we need to celebrate. Celebrate the fact that God is good, that He is merciful, He does give good gifts. However, we must be very careful as we ought not to look for eternal joy in this temporal place. We need to look for a greater joy that outlasts all things in this lifetime. Zechariah and Elizabeth know this. And that's why they were joyous, because they'd received a child. However, as we look to the next point of joy and the promise, we're going to see that they actually had an even greater joy than just the birth of their child. And so we're going to read now from verse 59 which says this. On the eighth day, Zachariah and Elizabeth, they came to circumcise the child and they were going to name him after his father, Zachariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. They said to her, there is no one among your relatives who has that name. And they made signs for his father to find out what he would like to name the child. And so he asked for a writing tablet And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue was set free. And he began to speak, praising God. All of the neighbors were filled with awe. And throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all of these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. What we see in this text is that Luke's highlighting the fact that there are two significant events that have taken place on the eighth day. The first of which is circumcision. If you don't know what that is, go home, ask your dad. He'd love to explain it to you. I'm not going to do that. That's his job. But circumcision is a way in which God's people were to be set apart. And so we see this happening to John. And quite simply put, it's happened just so that they can be fulfilling the law. It shows that Zechariah and Elizabeth were faithful to God. But the second event that we see is a little bit more significant. And it's the naming of John. You see, John's circumcision was accepted. They knew that it had to happen. There was no disputing it. But when it came to his name, for some reason, it caused some controversy with those around them. And so to understand what's actually going on here and why there was controversy, we need to actually ask the question... Why is the name so significant? Why does Luke spend so much detail in this text going into just about a name? Well, it's a little bit debated among theologians as to the day in which a name should be ascribed to a child. It's shown that Jewish tradition typically has it on the eighth day, hence they fulfilled that. However, there are many scholars who believe that some it was on the day, some it was up to 12 days, some it was less. But what is very clear is that John in this text, and we also see Jesus, who's paralleled in the text uh, coming up in the the coming weeks, they were both publicly named on the eighth day when they were circumcised. Now, in today's culture, people can have all sorts of names for their kids. Some are very normal, some are a little bit strange. And you might hear some crazy spelling. People can be named after a movie actor or a favorite character. 
I remember watching a TV ad recently. I think it was for either like a Snickers bar or a coffee. I can't exactly remember. And the family's last name is Murray. And they decide to call their kid's first name Callum. The ad then goes on about this kid going to school named Calamari. It wasn't an ideal name until he had the coffee. Then they changed it to something like Jack or something a bit more simple. Sorry, Pete. People today do still place importance on names. They still do. For example, my wife and I, we picked the name Lucas, firstly because it sounds good. We just like the sound of it. It flows well with his middle name. However, a more significant reason is that its name means bringer of light. And so we actually chose it in the sense that we would desire for Lucas to grow into one who becomes a bringer of the light of Christ into wherever he may be. You may have a reason, you may not, for the name that you've chosen for your kid, and that's fine. However, when we look back 2,000 years ago, it wasn't just common, it was actually expected that in Jewish culture that your name would be carried down from your father or your grandfather. That's why we hear the question of the crowd saying, there is no one among your relatives who has that name. It was, it was just odd. <laughs> I don't think we can fully understand it, how odd it was for them to pitch this entirely different name of John, unlike anything else that was even in the family. Yet the responses of both the parents is remarkable. In the face of adversity, in the face of those around them who they love, basically criticizing their name of their child, they declare, no, he's to be called John. And then the father, the head of the home, in this case, he wrote down, his name is John. Both of them were so very clear in their resolve. This is what the Lord, through the angel Gabriel, has said for the child to be called. They were faithful to God. They trusted in him, even when everyone else around them was trying to say they were being a bit strange. And the name John, well, it's a cool name as well, but it also means God is gracious. God is gracious. And he was. God was remarkably gracious to them, giving them a child well past the age, despite being barren. God is gracious to them. Yet despite this, Zachariah and Elizabeth know that there is an even greater joy for them than the child. The child's exciting, that's, that's awesome. But there is something even greater. They knew that their son would come and that he would make ready a people for the Lord for salvation. How do I know that they were prepared for this or they knew that this was coming? Well, earlier in chapter 1, verse 17, it says, And he, so they're talking about John, he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of their parents to their children and the disobedient of the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Their joy was no longer just in having a child. As exciting as that was for them, they had an even greater joy in their life knowing that their son was to be the one who would make way for the Messiah. They were filled with his joy. And it's not just even the parents who are filled with this joy. We see that the whole region is excited. Luke records that because of these events, the birth, the naming of the child, the healing of Zachariah's voice, everyone in the region is filled with awe. And they begin to wonder what is going to happen to this child. As they could see that the hand of the Lord was with them. His power and mercy, God's power and mercy was displayed, yes, in the parents, 
But in this child, everyone was filled with joy. But none more so than the dad, Zachariah. Consider this for a moment. He has been mute for nine months. He was unable to talk about anything at all. He couldn't discuss the footy scores with his mate. He couldn't even ask his wife how a day was going. He could do nothing. Absolutely nothing. He would be thinking but not able to speak. Now, if you or I were made mute for that kind of time, we'd be frustrated. And my first words when I got out of that would likely be to whinge or to complain about how hard that time was, about how much I suffered, and how much I really didn't like that paint colour my wife chose for the baby. Zachariah gives us the opposite of this. He gives us the opposite. Instead of being upset at his punishment, instead of being annoyed, instead of complaining, he is filled with the Holy Spirit, and with great joy, he begins to sing what is one of the most beautiful hymns that we could read. He is filled with such tremendous joy as he is seeing God fulfill his promises, not just corporately, but in his own family, in his own child. So let's now have a look at this last point and let's read this beautiful song together from verses 67 to 80. Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham and to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear, in holiness and in righteousness before him all of our days. Speaking about his child here, he says, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, and to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And it says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. This is the second major song that we read in the Gospel of Luke. It's often called the Benedictus. That word comes from the, from the Latin version of Luke's Gospel, where the first word is translated as blessed. Benedictus. And we see this song broken into two very distinct categories. Verses 68 to 75, so the first two thirds of it, speak very, very clearly about God's messianic deliverance. There is one to come who is coming to deliver his people, just as he's foretold. And in the last third of it, verses 76 to 79, is specifically Zechariah prophesying about his son, John, the one who would come and lead the way for the Saviour. This song in both style and content is very similar to Mary's Magnificat, or Mary's song that we heard taught about last Sunday, and it's packed full of Old Testament allusions and quotes. In fact, there's actually 16 of them just in that text that we read. 
It's the joyous words of a priest who is, yes, thankful for his son, John, who is, yes, thankful for being able to talk again, and, yes, thankful for the plans for his child. However, there is one theme that seemingly trumps everything that I've just mentioned. And it's easy to brush over. He is repeatedly thankful in this song for God's faithfulness to his promise. And that promise is that the Lord that he has served his entire life as a priest would bring about salvation. That's what he's excited about. Almost every line in the song has reference to either rescue, deliverance, or salvation itself. I encourage you to have a read of it and take your time a bit later to even pour through it slowly and to see that. This promise was initially made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis. God said to him, in your seed, all of the nations will be blessed. You see, there was one to come from the line of Abraham and subsequently David, who would bring about deliverance for his people. God promised that salvation would come. He shows his faithfulness to keeping his word, and we see that in the child of John. But there is an even greater promise to come, and that's salvation. And you see, despite generations upon generations of unfaithfulness, disobedience, and even just pure wicked ways, God has been continually faithful to his promise. We serve and we love a covenant-keeping, faithful God. And so Zechariah declares this boldly. He states that a horn has been raised up. Another word for horn, or a couple of words, is a strong king. A strong king has been raised up, one who is able to deliver. And not only that, but to announce the one to prepare the way for this strong king would be his son. The one born to an old couple past the age of having children. No wonder he's filled with such tremendous joy, right? God's been good to him. However, there is a sobering reality to this great joy for him. And it's this. Despite the fact that we read of his joy in this song and of the joy of those around him, Zachariah himself likely didn't even live long enough to actually see Jesus' ministry. The ministry of Jesus didn't start for some 30 years until after this song was written. Why do I highlight this? I meant to finish on an up note, right? It's Christmas Eve, let's be joyous. But it's for this reason. I think joy in this lifetime can be a lot like a roller coaster. You have the high moments and you have the low moments. And I'm sure, I'm actually convinced that Zachariah expected the kingdom and deliverance to arrive for him, his family, those that he loved, God's people, almost immediately. When he was prophesying this, when he was seeing the fulfillment in his own son coming, I don't expect that he would have thought that it was gonna, he wasn't going to see it in his lifetime. I think his own joy level would have gone up and down. And it's not just in his text that we actually see this. Even as we look at some other parts of Scripture, take Psalm 51, for example. The psalmist writes, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Why would he write that his joy needs to be restored if it had never gone down, if he'd never lost some of that? Joy will go up and down in this lifetime. However, there is one joy 
that Zechariah knew of would come. There is one joy that he knew would last, that it would endure. And I'm going to read verses 78 and 79 again, and I believe that that's where we see it. It's to be up on the screen, and it says, Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. Zechariah knew that God was merciful and that he was sending the rising sun from heaven who would bear light to those living in darkness and who would guide his feet. He's speaking of the one who's to be revealed tomorrow, born of Mary in a barn in Bethlehem. That's the one who he's speaking of. Church, true joy is found not in this lifetime by temporal things, It is found in this, in the knowledge, in the hope, and in the reality of salvation. At the start, I mentioned that there are likely some people in this room struggling to have joy at the moment. And I said that you're in good company. Well, before I share that that good company is me, let me have a drink and I'll explain why. This sermon, yes, it was written for you. It was written because this is the text that I was handed by Pete Milliken to preach. But I've got to be honest and say it was really written for myself. I needed to be reminded afresh to put my hope and to find find my joy in Christ Jesus alone. I mentioned that it's my son's birthday today. And whilst he is a tremendous joy to me and my wife, the events of these last few months have meant that I've been on a roller coaster of highs and lows. At about six months old, we looked on the little baby monitor camera, see him shaking, went into his room to find him having a seizure. So we take him to hospital. I was driving a little bit above 60, and um, we took him to hospital. A month later... The same thing. A month later, two more this time. Month after that, another one. In total, he had five in three months. Now, they're meant to be what's called a, a febrile seizure, so some of your kids may have had one, which some kids have them, but it's most common that you only have one, maybe two, over about a four to six year period. And so this many of them, in such close proximity, with some of the complexities, put him in a bit of a different category. And so we did what the Scriptures say to do. In James chapter 5, it says that if anyone among you is sick, they should call for the elders to come and to anoint them with oil, to lay hands on them, to pray for them, that the prayer of a righteous person will heal them. They'll be healed. That's what the Scriptures say. And so we did that. Pete, Nath, Graham, Dave, they came around, they anointed with oil on the head of my son, he was squirming, (laughs) and they prayed for him. I fasted, and we prayed. And you know, for the last 10 weeks, nothing happened. Glory to God, he had no issues. We were filled with the highest of joys. God has healed our child. Thank you. 
However, it was about 10 or so days ago, we were camping with some friends and we were up on a beach that was fairly remote access up at Double Island Point, if you know where that is. It had been an amazing almost two weeks away. It was the break that I needed after what's been a really hard year. We were playing in the water or just near the edge of it. And we turn away for a second and we look back and there's our son having another seizure face down in the water. Any highs of that 10 weeks prior was gone. And to be honest, even now, I'm still filled with disappointment and sorrow and even anger at the reality of the fact that he hasn't been healed yet. If the 10 weeks before were the top of the roller coaster, that incident was the very bottom. I'm still processing this disappointment. You can ask Pete Milliken. I've written this sermon a few times. And I've spent most of my week crying as I've been reading the text. Going, my heart's not filled with joy at the moment. Yeah, I'm thankful for stuff. I'm thankful for that video. Thankful it's his birthday. But man, there's some hard stuff at the moment. I don't say it for pity. I say it because it's a reality. However, there is something that I've come to see as I've wrestled with this text today and spent some time reflecting over the last week or so, and it's this. There is a joy to be found not in the current circumstances of this life, but in the thought of what God is going to do and the thought of the fact that God will do what he says that he is going to do. You know what that is? He's going to make all things new. There is a day coming where there won't be seizures. There won't be cancer. There won't be disease or death because it'll be done away with. This is the deep, sobering joy that I need and that we all need in life during hardship. This joy in my life, it's not going to make me jump around and clap my hands. And to be honest, it doesn't even fully make sense of the events of 10 days ago. But it does help me, and it ought to help you to live with a joy in your soul, knowing that Jesus is faithful. He is at work. And that salvation has come to all who call upon his name. Do I want the Lord to heal my son? Absolutely. Do I believe he can? Yeah, I do. But my reflections this week have been this. You know what my son needs more than physical healing? You know what I need more than that? What you all need more than that? Is you need one who can save your soul. Lucas needs one who can save his soul. The richest of rich and the poorest of poor, the tallest of the short. One day we will all stand before the Lord. And it won't matter what your physical body was like, how healthy or broken it was, what job you had or where you lived. It's not going to matter. What you need is a saviour. One who knows what it means to suffer. One who knows what it means to be rejected. And you need someone who can take all of your wrongs 
all of your dirty mess and not just rinse them a little bit, but completely wash them. Completely wash them. It's what you need. And the best news is it's available to you. It is available to you because Christ Jesus has come into the world. That's what tomorrow morning is all about. The king, the horn, the light in the darkness, salvation has come. Zechariah only got to foresee that it was coming. We get to live in the reality of the fact that it has come. So you might be finding it really hard to have joy at the moment because of whatever the circumstance may be. However, you need to know that joy is available to you afresh this day. A joy in knowing that your sins are forgiven and that you can have eternal life with God. And one day we will be filled with that joy totally and completely. We will see him high and lifted up. And our souls will fully rejoice in the saving work of Jesus Christ. I look forward to that day. I didn't want to put this last paragraph in, but I'm going to say it. I look forward to that day when my son Lucas and I stand side by side. Not as father and son, but as brothers. And we look at Jesus and rejoice and behold his beauty. And say thank you. For his seizures will be no more. All sorrow will cease. And we will behold our Savior together. Jesus, we love you. We love you. My knowledge of this life is small. The eye of faith is dim. It is enough to know that Christ knows all and I shall be with him. Jesus, thank you for the assurance, for the hope, (laughs) for the knowledge that we will be with you. We will be with you. Thank you. Jesus, I pray that this Christmas would not just be a time of presents and of food and of celebration and those things. Because those things are good and we can rejoice in them. But most of all, may it be a time where regardless of how our life may be going or looking, we would rejoice in you. What you've done. You are merciful, you are great, you are faithful, and you are worthy of praise. I thank you that despite hard circumstances and trials in life, we can trust you. You are a trustworthy God. And so, Lord, for those in this room this morning who might be struggling to trust you because of circumstances, I pray that you would fill them with great faith today. Do that work in me, Lord. And for those whose life is going really well, (laughs) how blessed are you that you would give them good things. Thank you for your word. We thank you for your son.
Let me read this prayer. All this in Jesus' name. Amen.